definitely get into it. We're going to be in uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 this evening. But before we start that, we're going to go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Um, Father God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, that your scriptures would be illuminated. That you would speak to us. That your word would penetrate our hearts. Would shape our minds. Lord, and influence our lives. So that many can come to know you. So that many can come to love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, a few weeks ago, we talked about different types of wisdom. Remember, we talked about wisdom from above, that wisdom that comes from God, and we talked about earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom, right? And James is going to take some time to show us wisdom in action. That's why I titled this lesson, Wisdom Applied. He's first going to show us that we have a choice between friendship with God and friendship with the world. Then he's going to show us that we have a choice between humility and arrogance or selfishness. And then finally, he's going to show us how to speak wisely to those who are brothers and sisters. So in in chapter 4, verse 1 through 12, that's what we're going to see. So let's go ahead and start with the scripture, the best place to start. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, what causes quarrels among, or, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So James wants us to take a moment and examine ourselves. And so he asks this, what causes the quarrels and fights among us? And he really doesn't give us a whole lot of time to answer before he tells us and he exposes the reality. We are selfish. Our default mode is selfishness. How is it going to impact me? How is it going to influence me? How, can, how am I going to get ahead We let our passions take over and blind us to the reality of how we should be living in light of the gift of salvation that we have received. There's obviously in this church some bad blood between the congregation members that James is writing to. But it isn't just a promise or a problem limited to first century Jewish believers. It's a problem for us as well. We have all been a part of or are in the middle of a quarrel or an argument with somebody within the church. Or we've witnessed one. We let our passions blind us to the reality that we all serve the same God, we all have the same mission, and we all worship the same Savior. But we tend to let our passions blind us. These are the same 
Sinful, self-indulgent passions that cause destruction, that cause division, that cause chaos, and that cause us pain. And he says in verse 2 that they are causing murder because of the evil desires. Now, this probably isn't actual murder. They're probably not actually killing each other, although that is a possibility. But James is most likely leaning on the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount, where Jesus says in Matthew five twenty-one and 22, You have heard it said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to count to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's not just murder, actual murder, but it's a heart stance. It's if you're angry, you are essentially murdering. You're subject to the same judgment as those who actually murder because hatred and anger toward one another is a grievous sin to God. It's grievous sin to God. This type of anger reveals a lack of wisdom from above because it relies upon jealousy, selfish ambition, and selfishness. That's where that anger comes from. This is what happens when our passions Our preferences and our perspective are wrapped up in me, me, me. So when our passions, our preferences and perspective are wrapped up in me, then it's easy for me to get angry when somebody is inconvenient. When somebody inconveniences is an inconvenience to me. Then anyone that stands against us or the way in our way, we get angry. We put push them aside, we begin to quarrel, we begin to fight with, we begin to see how we can best them and how we can get our way. And when we lack godly wisdom, all we are able to do is focus on ourselves, on our own desires. This 17th century Jewish philosopher, his name is Spinoza, this is what he said about the Christians in the 17th century. And just think about this. This was a, a long time ago, but how much it... It rings true today. He says, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that is rather than the virtues which they professed, this is this is the readiest criteria of their faith. So basically he's saying rather than actually doing what they proclaim, they are in complete opposite of that. They are completely, instead of having love, joy, peace, and temperance towards each other, they are angry, frustrated, hatred towards one another. See, one of the marks of the church is that we love one another. Jesus says in John thirteen five, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love for one another. Nothing is more detrimental to the church and our witness than if we hate. If we hate each other and if we hate the, the people in this world, it is detrimental to our weakness. And it's especially detrimental if we hate each other because we are to be marked by love. We will be known by the way we love. 
if we continue to look more like the world than we do look like Jesus, we are not taking part in godly wisdom. If we reflect the world more than we reflect Jesus, we are not taking part in godly wisdom. We can continue to be worried about the things of this world, to be worried about the state of our country. We can continue to be worried about things that will pass away, but if we don't love, that is more detrimental to our mission and to our calling and to our witness. And this leads to verse 3. James says in verse 3, You do not ask, or you ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, we've talked about this extensively on Wednesday nights. God is the perfect giver of gifts. God loves to give gifts to his people. He loves to give gifts to his children. But he will only give the gifts that will help you to grow in your love and affection for him and for others. So if you ask for things out of selfish desires... And if you ask for things that don't adhere to or bring about his glory, you will not receive what you have asked for. And if you do receive what you have asked for, it's a condemnation on you. Because God does sometimes give us over to our passions. And that brings us away from him. That's what it says in Romans is he let them in, give, give in to their passions. Good and perfect gifts are from God and not from those that serve your passions. Passion is not a bad thing, but when passion is your perspective, and that passion is not the love of Jesus, it's a bad thing. It's a real bad thing. They are not those that cause you, the passions are not those that cause you to become more about you or they do. When your passions make you become more about you, your own advancement, your own pleasure, and your own comfort, it's dragging you away from the Savior. The gift God gives are given to help glorify Him and to bring about His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's why God gives good gifts. And this is where the prosperity gospel really gets it wrong. Because God doesn't exist to or He doesn't exist just to provide you with things that make you happy. He doesn't exist just to provide... He's not just a benefit for us. He is the Lord and Savior that we should worship. God always gives so that he can be made much of. And we'll see this in the book of Acts. Why did God allow the apostles to present miracles? Why were they able to heal people? So that he would be glorified. And everything that God gives us is that we can make much of him. We will not receive what we ask for if it does not line up with godly desires. Unless, again, it's a judgment upon us. And James goes in a little harder. He goes in a little harder on these believers. For most of the letter, he's, he's used particularly gentle language, calling them brothers. But he's about to bring the hammer down. And in verses 4 and 5, this is what he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
that phrase, you adulterous people. You people who are committing adultery against the Lord. This should remind us of the Old Testament prophets who are calling out the Israelites. In Jeremiah 3.20 it says this, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You have abandoned me. When we are called to God, we need to view it as a marriage between ourselves and the king of the universe. And when we chase after the selfish, earthly, demonic wisdom, we are violating our relationship with God. When we seek friendship with the world and with the things of this world, we are telling God that his love isn't good enough for us, that it isn't enough for us. We are committing spiritual adultery when we are friends of the world. And see, friendship in the first century is a little bit different than the way we view friendship now. When James writes about friendship with the world, he is writing about the sharing of all things. This is a deeply intimate, personal, and spiritual unity between people. And so this friendship with God is where we give of ourselves completely and wholly to him. We're either giving ourselves completely and wholly to him, or we're giving ourselves completely and wholly to the world. There's no, there's no middle ground. We cannot have the type of reliance and relationship with both God and the world. You just can't serve two masters, as Jesus would put it. Something has got to give. We cannot be bounded to the things of this earth without being adulterous toward God. And here's the thing. Oftentimes we don't overtly, right? We don't overtly disclaim God by consciously choosing to follow the world. But when we imitate the world, when our concern is chiefly worldly, that is when we are acting as friends of the world. When our wisdom reflects mostly the earthly wisdom instead of godly wisdom, that's the problem. It's not a saying that we don't want God or we don't love God, but when we lose focus off of him and we're chasing after the things of the world, when we neglect those in need, when we show preference to someone over another, when we speak with hatred, jealousy, or the like, we are demonstrating a friendship with the world over a friendship with God. So everything that James has talked about previously, he's saying that if you're doing those things, then you are having a friendship with the world and not a friendship with God. When we are more concerned with our own pleasures and desires and preferences rather than the mission of God, we demonstrate our friendship with the world over our friendship with God. And God doesn't tolerate rivals. He will not stand for them. He is jealous for us. He wants you to know that he cares for you. He wants you to know that he loves you and he wants what's best for you. Like a daddy who, who corrects his child when he makes a mistake. It's not that we correct our ch children just because they're annoying. It's because we're correcting our children because we love them and we care for them and we want what's best for them. That's a, a mantra I say to my son Levi. I want you to know that this is for your good. I want what's best for you. And God's standing up saying, I want what's best for you. I'm not telling you you can't have these things because I want to keep joy and happiness from you. I'm telling you, you don't need those things to make you happy. You don't need those things to find your joy. You find your joy and your fulfillment and your happiness in me. He wants our full focus. 
our whole devotion because he knows that is what will make us whole. He is what makes us whole. That, that is what will make us be the best us that we can be is when we are devoted solely to him. Not only that, but if we belong to, them, to him, we, he has sole claim over our life. He has sole claim because of the work that he is doing within us and the work that he has done for us to grant us salvation. And he alone deserves our devotion. He alone deserves our friendship. Not only that, but he yearns for it. He wants it. He longs for intimacy with us because we are his children and he is our father. He wants us to curl up in his arms. And get, he wants to give us the good gifts that'll make us holy, that'll make us righteous, that'll make us look more like Jesus so that we can be in a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. But even when we mess up, there is grace. There is grace. But that grace can only be accessed through humility. Grace demands the response of humility. And humility is difficult but is necessary. In verses 6 through 10, he says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humility is hard. We have to get over ourselves and look to God. We have to submit to God. Humility even though it's difficult, is for our benefit. And it seems counterintuitive, right? How can thinking of myself less be beneficial for me? Well, one, it tells us in verse 6, God opposes those who are proud. But he gives more grace, it says in verse 6. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We want to be on God's side, right? We want to be on God's side. We want God to be for us, but we can't enter into that and be proud. Pride spits in the face of God. It screams at him that I know better than him. It screams that I don't need you. I don't rely on you. Pride is the first and greatest sin, thinking that I know better than my creator on how to live my life. Going back to the child. It's like the child saying, no, I need ice cream for breakfast, and I know I need it, right? It's, but you don't. It's not healthy for you. I have in mind something that's better for you, right? But when we spit in God's face, I mean, you think about Adam and Eve. They were walking with God in the garden. They had a full access to God in the garden, and through deception and pride, thinking that God was withholding from them, they decided to sin against God. So even in a perfect environment, 
sin is still possible, right? And so we need to humble ourselves and know that we are able to and that we consistently do sin. And we need to ask for forgiveness and ask for grace to, to know that about ourselves. If I submit to God, then through the power he gives to us, we can resist the devil. But we can't resist the devil until we submit to him. So it says in 4.7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. One commentator says this, he says, To submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship and therefore, therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. We all need a how-to on how to resist the, the, the temptations of the devil. Right? We need a, a step-by-step guide on how to resist the temptations of the devil. So I'll give it to you. You ready? All right. Step one, submit to God. Step two, rely on God. Step three, obey God. And step four, repeat steps one through three. Right? So submit to God, rely on God, obey God, and continue to do that. And as we continue to do that, we will resist the devil. If we are under the authority of God, then we will firmly refuse to bow to the devil's authority because we know where the true authority is. And humility allows me and allows you to draw near to God because it allows me to see my wretchedness for what it is. In 4.8, it says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We all need saving from our sinfulness. And we all continue to need grace in our messiness. As we draw near to God, we will see the reality of our filthiness. The closer we get to God, the more wretched we will see ourselves. Because we stand before a holy God. I think about that vision that Isaiah had when he was in the temple. He's like, I can't stand here. I can't stand here in the holiness of God. And then God cleanses him. God purifies him. And as we draw near to God, we will be able to focus on what is good, what is holy, what is righteous, and what is perfect. And we need to constantly be aware. We need to constantly be aware of our need for God's grace because of our tendency to sin, our capacity to sin. We are very apt at departing from God. We are very apt at departing from godly attitudes and behaviors. But as we draw near, we will be reminded of our need and our reliance on God. We can't do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit that is within us to aid us. Humility allows us to take our sin seriously. We have to take our sin seriously. He says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter at your sin be turned to mourning and your joy in your wretchedness be turned to gloom. That's essentially what he's saying. Too often we look at our sin as just some little bad behavior that we didn't really have control over. The devil made me do it, right? We don't take our sin seriously enough. We don't really think that it grieves the heart of God. 
We can get so into our selfishness and so into our filthiness that we don't realize that every time that we do something sinful, it breaks the heart of God. James is trying to get us to see that the sin that deeply affects us, it doesn't just deeply affect us, but it affects those around us. So we should mourn when we break the heart of God and not rejoice in our sin. We should weep when we grieve the heart of God. And this idea of laughter is reminiscent of the fool that's a character in the book of Proverbs. And he scorns the idea of right living. And he rejects the holiness of God. He lives a life of fruitlessness and is only concerned with the things of this earth. He is a fool and is rejected by God. See, sin is a serious breach in our relationship with God. Our sin can cause tremendous difficulty in our spiritual, our physical, and our emotional life. And we have to take it seriously. It's like that um, John Owen I keep quoting, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. If we really are part of God's people, if we really love God with everything that we say we love God, we have to take our sin seriously. And as true believers, we can never rejoice in our sin. But we can rejoice in God's forgiveness, in God's grace. But when we humble ourselves, we are exalted by God. So when we humble ourselves before the Lord, in verse 10, He will exalt you. We need to recognize that spiritual poverty and need for God, and when we recognize that, He elevates us and empowers us to seek forgiveness and to be washed clean. Humility is the only proper stance for a believer. Being humble means being exalted. God will exalt us. We submit to his greatness and, he, and we submit to his grace and we submit that in that process we are elevated to the status of God's children. We are able to resist the devil. We are able to be purified. We are able to see our sin for what it really is, breaking the heart of God. We are able to be grateful for a new life that we have been given. True humility causes us to look at our relationship with God and with one another in the true light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Therefore, when we have submitted to God and we live a life of humility, we will stand opposed to divisiveness and demonic wisdom. James issues another aspect of godly wisdom that we need to take part in. In the last two verses, 11 and 12, he says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Sometimes the harshest language comes from those we love, those closest to us. And this is true for the church too. We know how to push each other's buttons, especially in a small country church where we've all been together forever. We know what ticks somebody off, don't we? We know what 
upset someone. And James tells us that we should not speak evil against or to a brother. Why? Because they are one who is bought by the blood of Christ. We share in unity with Christ. We shouldn't judge or slander against them because we are not their judge. Right? We shouldn't gossip against them. Unfortunately, when we quarrel over most issues, it can result in name-calling and personal attacks. We go behind their back. We go and talk about them behind their backs. Let's not do that. May it not be. If we have an issue with somebody, let's talk to them. Let's confront them. Let's say, hey, most of the time, what happens is when we're upset with somebody, generally it's a misunderstanding, right? It's not usually that somebody is trying to be malicious. Sometimes it is. And if that's the case, we need to have an even more developed talk. But if we have a problem with somebody, let's just talk with them. Just sit down and say, hey, this is a problem. And confrontation can be hard. There's some of us, I don't like to be confrontational. But by God's grace, you know, if that needs to happen, then it needs to happen, right? But we have to be open and honest, and we are to love and to cherish and to care for one another. And sometimes that means having hard conversations. Love is sometimes difficult, a lot of times difficult. But we do not offer up slanderous words of hate, of anger, and of opposition towards someone. When we slander against our brothers or our sisters, we are causing division within the body of Christ, and the body of Christ should not be divided because a body divided is a body weakened, and a body weakened is susceptible to the schemes of the devil. Regardless of if we think they are wrong, when we cause division over things that don't need to be divisive, we are the problem. If it doesn't directly oppose God's word. Okay, so here's, here's a, a formula for if we need to be divisive. Okay, because sometimes there are things we have to be divisive about. Okay? And this is it. If it doesn't directly oppose God's word or the gospel, then we need to be careful how we respond to a brother or sister we believe to be in the wrong. So if they're in the wrong and it doesn't oppose God's word or the gospel, then we need to be careful. But if it does, if it does directly oppose God's word or the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that is a spot to be divisive. I mean, if we look at Galatians, Paul was very strict on this is the gospel and you do not preach anything differently or if you do, let you be cut off. The gospel is the drawing line. We're also not supposed to take on God's role as judge. When we do that, we're saying that we believe that they are not fit to be part of God's family. We are not the judge of who's fit to be in God's family. Believe me, we're all wrecks, right? We're all wrecks. And so we are not the ones to be able to, or that should judge who is a part of family, of God's family. We're not here to to decide someone's spiritual destiny. We're here to love. We're here to encourage. We're here to uplift. That's why we are here. We cannot and, and should not use our standards of what it means to be a Christian and place them on someone else. We all have different convictions. 
Right? We have different convictions on if we should dance, right? <laughs> or, or, you know, we have all have different convictions and standards on whether it's how much someone to, should tithe or something. But, and those convictions are important for our hearts. Those convictions are important for our personal relationship with Jesus. But we do not need to take our convictions if they're not pres- present in the Bible and place them upon someone else. We need to be generous. We need to be gracious. There are places where we do need to speak up and say something. Like if a fellow believer, a professing believer, is living in outright sin and boasting about it, we need to say something about it. But we do so, in these two special words, in love. We do so with grace, in love. Because we need to point them back to Jesus we need to point them back to the grace that they have received. But outside of outright sin, we need to be careful. We need to tread lightly because if it's not outright sin, then maybe they're just offending our preferences. And if they're just offending our preferences, we need to tread lightly. We are to demonstrate the love of God and for God to others. So even when we wish to try to correct someone, we need to do so in love. We need to approach them again with grace and with understanding. We need to remember that we should be chasing after godly wisdom and that even in our sin, God came and saved us. Godly wisdom drives us to be friends with God instead of friends with the world. Godly wisdom pushes us towards humility instead of arrogance. Godly wisdom guides our speech when we are dealing with those brothers and sisters that we disagree with. Godly wisdom should be our goal. And we should be seeking godly wisdom on a daily basis, an hourly basis, a second-by-second basis, so that we can live the holy life that God has called us to. Godly wisdom gives us guidance. Godly wisdom provides us with a way that we can love one another. Before we pray, are there any special prayer requests